So as Alan said, this is going to be the last in our series on what we call Life Within Limits, looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, and it sounds like some people are pleased by that. Uh, I've enjoyed it. So in my mind, the purpose for us as a congregation in looking at this book is to help us think seriously about the kind of lives um, that we're actually living. Um, I believe that we can only really live a healthy life with God as Christians um, if we're willing to engage with the reality of the world. Uh, of suffering, grief, difficulty and perplexity in our lives rather than ignoring them or pretending that they don't exist. Um, And as we've seen, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is a real help in this um, because in this book of wisdom, he relentlessly exposes for us the strategies that we use to build a life that ignores the reality of our limitations as creatures. And he makes us face the shadow side or the grey side of our lives. And of course, the key idea for him is what we've read in our Bibles as meaningless or meaninglessness. Life is meaningless, he says, right at the beginning of the book, and again to finish our reading from his teaching today. Each week, I've ever tried to remind us that the word he uses for meaningless is hevel, which doesn't mean meaningless as we think of it, but rather means that things in life are misty, ephemeral, enigmatic, insubstantial. Life is like a cloud of smoke, and it's very difficult to grasp. We can see it, but can't hold on to it. So each week we've seen the teacher kind of take on some of the cherished projects in our lives and our ideals and find that they are all, in fact, hevel. The pursuit of success and pleasure, of money and possessions, of happiness, wisdom, righteousness and enjoyment in life. All of them come to nothing in the end, swallowed up by the ravages of time, absurdity or death. And you can imagine what this man would be like to talk to at a party. I, uh, you know. <laughs> Um, But this is the world in which we live. That's what he calls it. This is life under the sun. We've also seen, however, that Jesus consistently offers us a way beyond uh, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, offering more than life under the sun. And today, in our last reading, in our last message, Ecclesiastes addresses all of us uh, in our journey through life, inviting us to take heed of where we are and where we're headed so that we can all weigh what is the best for us to do right now. And so this is about, I think, how we understand the different times or seasons of our life. Now, I wonder if you have an opinion. What is the best time of life? Which stage of life is the best time? The one that you would choose if you could stop time and live that way forever? Um, I never met my grandfather, but I hear that he used to say that childhood was the best time of life, before you have any real cares or responsibilities. And I think that's to be understood from someone who lived through the Great Depression and the Second World War as a young man, perhaps. Um, But some of us might also say that the best time of our life is what we call our youth. You know, it's teenagers or in our 20s, when we're relatively carefree, have lots of energy, free time, and every opportunity of life is still ahead of us. Or perhaps the middle of life is the best, when we begin to accumulate some achievements and some money perhaps, and perhaps start a family, and we've got so much going on, but we still have the energy to do those things. Or perhaps it's our retirement, when we can rest and reflect on life, and take up new opportunities to be things and to do things that we've always wanted to do. What do you think? I observe, though, that when answering this question, people often choose a time that's different to the one they're in now. 
Either one they remember as being really great when they were younger, which is what my grandfather did, or some time they're looking forward to in the future. And there's probably something significant in that that teaches us about our ability to be satisfied in our lives. The teacher has a fairly straightforward answer to this question, though, which is similar to my grandfather's take. He says that the good days in life are when we're young. In 12 verse 1, he says, These are the days before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. And his detail about this is in chapter 11, verses 9 to 10. When we're young, he says, it's easier to enjoy life because we're usually healthier and stronger. There's more time for joyful adventures. Of course, he does still go on to say that youth and youthful vigour are still meaningless uh, in verse 10. But regardless, he says, we have a greater opportunity for enjoyment then and we should take it when we can. And in verse 6, he says, this is the time to sow the seeds of your life and to start new things that have the potential for growth. And crucially, he says, this is the time when we should start to pay attention to life and to God. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, he says. Now, why is that? Why then? I think he says that um, because in some ways he sees that it's easier for us to see the goodness of God when life is more enjoyable and we have lots to be thankful for. And then hopefully after that to live the rest of our lives in awareness of God's presence rather than coming to it later when things aren't so easy or enjoyable and maybe harder to see signs of God around us. But there's a paradox in this wisdom which we might see, which is that it's easier or perhaps some ways more straightforward to see God when you're young, but that's also a time when a lot of people don't feel a lot of need or interest in God um, because life is too exciting and all the things that we can do take up our time. And if you look at churches, people tend to go missing from between about ages 18 to 35, I think, because of this reality. Um, so the teacher, though, thinks that life is best when you're young. And to contrast, though, he's quite negative about the goodness of life as we get older. You know, certainly he says in verse 8, however many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But he backs that up with a very negative assessment of the likelihood that that's going to happen. And I think that's probably partly because he lived in an age which had much more primitive health care than we do now. But, of course, this is still a very common complaint of many people. Chapter 12, if you read it as it's um, meant to be, is a fairly grim picture of the decline of human life as we experience as we age. And most commonly, the images that he puts in there have been read as a kind of poetic picture of the gradual failing of our physical and mental faculties. And you might have heard that way as we had the reading. So he says, we're creatures of our limits. And as we go on through life, our strength fails. And the parts of us that worked well when we were young, they don't work as well as they used to. Um, I recently had the experience of seeing people who knew me less than 10 years ago have trouble recognising me as I am now, you know. So it must be the ageing process or I don't know. Um, so anyway, despite the contrast between youth and age, of course, though, the teacher in the end sees all of this as meaningless, as hevel or fleeting anyway. All of us, young and old, are marching through life towards the time when, as he says in verse 5 of chapter when then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. When the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So we're all heading into the mist and where things are going to end for us. And all of us are going to arrive at that final point no matter how young we are now. And even though we all know this is absolutely 100% true, 
is a very hard thing for us to accept and to believe it will really happen. And I think that's why the teacher insists on reminding us of it. Because most of us live most of the time as though we are never going to die. Um, and I think that for us today, one of the symptoms of our failure uh, to accept this is the constant battle that goes on in our society between the different generations and about how we treat each other, about how we live. So this comes up all the time nowadays, often around the issue of something like home ownership at the moment, but other cultural matters and social matters as well. And we fight over lots of different things and often meaningless things in his perspective. So young people sometimes see older generations as overly conservative, holding on to the past, hoarding their wealth and not passing it on, betraying their ideals and crushing the hopes of young people in order to keep their own security. And older people often see younger generations as heedless, selfish and entitled, not understanding the realities of life, wanting everything given to them without working for it and not appreciating the gifts we have. And you might, they might say that youth is wasted on the young. You've might have heard that expression. And you've heard this sort of thing being said all the time. Um, generations fight over getting their needs met, look down on each other, squabble over all sorts of things. We want things our way and we want it to stay that way. But in the end, I think for Ecclesiastes, as the teacher would say, this kind of conversation is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is how we distract ourselves from the reality that the days of our life are running through our fingers like sand. And so the teacher would point out to us that we are therefore failing to live up to this reality and live wisely. Younger and older people struggling with each other over money and opportunities in the future are like children fighting over sandcastles as the tide rolls in, washing everything away in its path. In the end, all of us will face the end of our lives and eventually humanity will face the end of our world and the limits that face us all and the ocean of time will swallow up everything that we have ever done. So this then is the end of the teacher's wisdom and his argument about how to live life. There is an epilogue to the book of Ecclesiastes, though. We didn't read it. From verses 13 to 14 of chapter 12, which I will read for you now, he says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Now, some people like to read this as a kind of final optimistic twist to the book of Ecclesiastes. Yes, life is meaningless, but not if you trust God and keep his commandments. Um, I think that misunderstands a bit what's being said there, though. I think what the teacher gives us up until this point is definitely true wisdom. And, you know, our life is full of this mist, and we can't grasp the things that we pursue. And all we really can do is live well while we can and enjoy our limited life and realise that God is above all things and even if we don't understand them. I wouldn't call that a resounding victory for optimism, but it is a realistic view of life and I think the world would be a better place if we all followed it. I don't think we can get beyond the wisdom of Ecclesiastes without a higher vision of God's plan. There is too much mist and too much smoke and confusion in our lives and we get caught up in it and we get lost. And that's why again and again we fall into the trap of valuing money and valuing possessions and happiness too much and chasing after the wind. But what else can we do? What we need to know is if there's anything beyond all this mist and smoke. 
I want to express a quote, uh, share a quote that expresses this reality. This is written from a, uh, a, a conversation between a medieval English monk and historian uh, called the Venerable Bede, and he said uh, to the King of England at the time, this is in the, the, I think the 10th century, it seems to me that the life of man on earth is like the swift flight of a single sparrow through the banqueting hall where you're sitting at dinner on a winter's day with your captains and counsellors. In the midst, there is a comforting, comforting fire to warm the hall. Outside, the storms of winter rain and snow are raging. This sparrow flies swiftly in through one window of the hall and out through another. While he's inside, the bird is safe from the winter storms, but after a few moments of comfort, he vanishes from sight into the wintry world from which he came. So man appears on earth for a little while, but what of, of what went before his life or what follows, we know nothing. And I think this is a truthful and realistic assessment of the state of our general knowledge about life and what we actually see. But fortunately, as Christians, we do actually have just such a vision of what follows this life, right given to us in the New Testament and right at the close of the, of the Bible. So in Revelation 21, we do have a vision that is given to us of the new heavens and the new earth and the place for all those who have been saved through Jesus. And this is the picture given to John. So I read to you from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be with their God and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things away. He who has passed away, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So this view, Revelation gives us, it's a view beyond Hevel, it's beyond the mist of what things are really like out there. And it's a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so I think that we can only really understand and live the wisdom of Ecclesiastes in light of Jesus, in light of the hope that he brings. Um, as we've looked at Ecclesiastes over the past few weeks and listened to what it has to say, um, it might have struck you as being a bit too sad and sombre a book and too gloomy to take seriously. Um, I've never heard so many uh, jokes by Bible readers <laughs> and they come up to, to do their readings as when we read this. But what he's really doing in this book, I think, is offering us the freedom that comes from a true perspective on our life and the tools that we need to truly enjoy the life that we have in, in a way that's appropriate for the kind of creatures that we are. So how can we enjoy our life if we're constantly chasing after the wind rather than accepting what is in front of us and living in that? We are creatures with limits, but within the limits we are sustained by the grace and the goodness of God and his wisdom and his plans for us. We are like that bird flying through the hall, and in the short time of life that we have, we really can't grasp anything meaningful or lasting as it passes by. But even in that short time, we can begin to reflect the light of God and enjoy the gifts that he has to offer and look forward to the eternal joy that we have waiting in Christ for us. We don't need to get caught up in pursuing all the meaningless things as though this is all that we have. 
we can be content and take the good and bad in life as it comes. So each season in life, no matter how old or how young that we are, has this light shining over it, the light of revelation if we're followers of Jesus. So every season is an opportunity to know God and to serve him. So when we're young, yes, we can remember God and take life seriously because we know that we'll have all the time that we need to fulfill our purpose and to experience the life that God is offering us. We have more than just a few years to get our enjoyment in. We have eternity. In our middle age, the cares of life and work and family, they're not a distraction from our real life. They are a testing ground for our character and our perseverance in seeking to grow spiritually as well as becoming successful in the world terms, world's terms. And when we're older, we don't just have to look for comfort and security in our last years, holding on to good things in familiar ways and refusing to change and let go. We can let things go and share them with those who come after us because we know what God has planned for us in the future. This is freedom, isn't it? This is wisdom. Life is hevel, but it is not meaningless. So now that we've finished Ecclesiastes, you might want to think about how you put those ideas into practice. Um, with something like this that's so challenging, there tends to be a gap between talking about it and doing anything about it. It's a bit hard. So I want to, I want, we want to learn to put some substance on these ideas. I'd encourage you to read through Ecclesiastes on your own, slowly and carefully, and asking all the time, is this true for me? And if so, what can I do about it? I have made jokes, of course, about how serious Ecclesiastes is, but nothing he says seems untrue to me, and my life is better if I do what he suggests, even if it doesn't feel good. Um, so what if there's more to life than feeling good all the time? What does it actually do for your life to think about it as a whole and to have a perspective on all stage stages of your life and where you are? To realise that, yes, you will die one day. And to accept that and live in the light of that. So I encourage you to talk to each other about it before we talk about what's going on in the news today or yesterday over morning tea. Well, while you do that, I'll just talk about what you've learned in Ecclesiastes. What is it that needs to change in your life? There was never a society in world history where Ecclesiastes was more relevant than ours. The teacher's head would have exploded if he saw how we live and how we pursue these meaningless things. The people that he was telling off for being so materialistic and valuing possessions too much, we would consider them extremely poor if we met them today. So read Ecclesiastes, but then read the Gospels as well to see what Jesus had to say. Because he takes everything that we know, all our wisdom, and he turns it upside down and inside out. As, Re as Revelation says, he makes all things new. So let's work with him for our own lives for that. So let me pray, and then we're going to move into a time of reflection as well. Lord, it is hard to look at the reality of our lives, to understand them as they are, and to accept that. I pray that you would open our eyes and minds and hearts to the world as it is, to ourselves as we are, to the life that you've given us and in this brief time as we fly through this banquet hall that your light would begin to shine on us and to give us your gifts and your grace. I pray for all of us here that the wisdom of life would come into our minds, that we would shape our lives around what is real 
to follow you, to seek what is substantial and solid and will last, to let go of chasing after the wind. And we pray that Christ would put in our hearts a hope that cannot be defeated. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.